I want to start season two by thanking some of the people who helped us get here. This past summer, we had a Kickstarter campaign to raise funds to support the podcast. Many people gave, and we are grateful to all of them. But I would like to thank our four top donors who gave enough to ensure that this season could happen. So thank you to Sean Dana, Jessica Gonzalez, Dennis Parker, and Bill Perda. Now on with the show. It is true that I have sent six bullets through the head of my best friend. And yet I hope to show by this statement that I am not his murderer. At first I shall be called a madman. Madder than the man I shot in the cell at the Arkham Sanitarium. Later, some of my readers will weigh each statement, correlated with the known facts, and ask themselves, how could I have believed otherwise than as I did after facing the evidence of that horror? That thing on the doorstep. I have known Edward Pickman Darby all his life. What lay behind their joint love of shadows and marbles was, no doubt, the ancient, mouldering, and subtly fearsome town in which we lived. Which cursed the legend-haunted Arkham, whose huddled, sagging gambrel roofs and crumbling Georgian balustrades brewed out the centuries beside the darkly muttering Miskatonic. Welcome to Psychologia, a scientific exploration of the strange and pathological. I'm your host, Amaya Perda. no surprise to listeners of this podcast that the legacy of mental health treatment is fraught with unimaginable horrors and abuse instead of care and rehabilitation. There are many terrifying stories and legends that depict the misery endured by patients in asylums and hospitals, and while many seem too horrific to be true, the real history of psychiatric hospitals may be even worse than you imagine, and in some places, they are still happening today. When you picture an American asylum, a very specific image probably comes to mind. An imposing brick building with peaked roofs and vast wings spreading out over expansive grounds. This vision may seem fanciful, but it is actually not far from the true architecture of many 19th and 20th century hospitals. And this is thanks to one man, Thomas Story Kirkbride. Thomas Kirkbride was a Philadelphia psychiatrist, born in 1809. He believed in the philosophy of moral treatment, which focused on social welfare and individual rights. This movement grew out of the early 18th century view that the insane were more like wild animals with no reason rather than human beings. At this time, people judged to be insane were forced to endure horrific conditions and treatments that included whipping and beating, bloodletting and starvation, and even irritant chemicals on their skin and in their eyes. 
Moral treatment was a new approach with a more psychosocial, humane attitude toward care and an emphasis on moral discipline. Kirkbride also believed in environmental determination, which is the study of how the physical environment affects societies and people. These two concepts, moral treatment and environmental determination, had a big impact on what Kirkbride would go on to do. In 1843, an activist and formal Civil War nurse named Dorothea Dix wrote Memorial to the Legislature of Massachusetts, a text describing the horrors she had witnessed during three years of investigating the state's treatment of poor, mentally ill citizens. I proceed, she wrote, briefly to call your attention to the present state of insane persons confined within this commonwealth, in cages, stalls, and pens. Chained, naked, beaten with rods, and lashed into obedience. She spent the next year, 1844, visiting all the counties in New Jersey doing similar research. What she found was appalling. All across the state, the mentally ill were being housed in private homes, the basements of public buildings, and even county jails. She composed a detailed report and made an appeal to the New Jersey legislature calling for massive reformation, and within a year, a bill was passed for the establishment of a state facility. And this is where Thomas Kirkbride comes back into the picture. Kirkbride's moral treatment and environmental determination ideas made him the perfect candidate to design the new and hopefully better facilities. He began with a plan that included not only the ideal architecture for more humane treatment, but also ideas about medical treatment. The first complete building built using the Kirkbride plan was the New Jersey State Lunatic Asylum in 1848, the very building that Dorothea Dix had convinced the New Jersey State Legislature to approve. Kirkbride believed in institutionalization, and his buildings were designed to have a curative effect. As he put it, each one was a special apparatus for the care of lunacy, whose grounds should be highly improved and tastefully ornamented. He believed that exposure to natural air and light was crucial to this care, and so the typical floor plan for each building was in the batwing style, with long, rambling rooms sprawling out from the large central structure. These wings were arranged in a staggered way, with long hallways leading out to each side, and the rooms at the end of the hallways were reserved for the most excitable, physically dangerous, and volatile patients. I'm sure you're thinking this is the stuff of nightmares, but initially the Kirkbride plan was quite successful. Throughout the remainder of the 19th century and into the 20th, dozens upon dozens of hospitals were built following the plan across the United States and beyond. The buildings were large and attractive, with massive, well-tended grounds and a parlor in each wing. Kirkbride's philosophy went so far as to suggest the salaries for all the employees of each building, from the physician-in-chief, who made between $1,500 and $2,000 a year, down to the seamstresses, who made ninety-six. That's right. Each asylum was meant to have a seamstress, and a night watchman, a carriage driver, gardeners, engineers. You see where I'm going. The expense of running a Kirkbride facility was astronomical. And this flaw, which was originally designed so that each hospital would be a place of care and beauty, led to the downfall of the plan. By early 20th century, popularity of the design began to dwindle. It was enormously expensive to keep Kirkbride's vision going, 
and the economic pressure became too much for states to handle. On top of that, Kirkbride's theories of humane and moral treatment began to lose ground, and by the 1920s, the Kirkbride plan was largely abandoned. What was not abandoned, however, was the massive array of hospitals already full of patients. State funding dried up, the top doctors were gone, the seamstresses were gone, the gardeners had packed it in, and the fleets of nurses had dwindled to almost nothing, and suddenly those long corridors went dark, and the humanity of the people who inhabited them was forgotten. And then the nightmares began. Without staff to provide proper care, the Kirkbride asylums deteriorated rapidly. Today we are going to shine a spotlight on a few particular hospitals and the atrocities that occurred after the funding was cut. Trenton State Hospital began its life as the New Jersey State Lunatic Asylum, and it was the first hospital built using the Kirkbride Plan in 1848. It operated successfully for decades. By the end of the 19th century, it began to change. In 1907, Dr. Henry Cotton landed the role of director and began to put his own treatment ideas in place. In some ways, his views were progressive, maybe even positive. For example, he didn't believe in using restraints on patients, and he hired more staff and had regular meetings about good patient care, and he trained nurses to avoid using violence at all costs. On the other hand, however, he had some very dangerous notions about mental illness, and these ideas turned the asylum into a house of horrors. The history of mental illness is tightly wound up in the history of physical ailments, and Dr. Cotton is a prime example of the dark side of this interconnection. After it was discovered in 1913 that the bacterium that causes syphilis is also responsible for a whole host of psychiatric problems, Dr. Cotton started to believe that all psychological illnesses were just the result of infections in the body. This idea led him to the conclusion that the only way to cure patients of mental illness was to remove the infected body parts. He began pulling out his patient's teeth in 1917 even when he couldn't actually see any infection in an x-ray. After that, he started cutting out organs like stomachs, ovaries, and uteruses, testicles, large sections of colons, often without permission from the people he was operating on or their families. He bragged that his surgeries cured mental illness at the rate of 85%, but in fact, he killed an alarming number of people who came to him for help. One of the most disturbing things about Dr. Cotton is that he developed and conducted these gruesome amputations and excisions right under the nose of other medical professionals. He published papers, he gave presentations, he even had others come to observe what he was doing, and yet no one made him stop. This wasn't a case of a single crazy rogue doctor hacking up patients in secret. This was a situation in which other psychiatrists and administrators not only allowed but encouraged horrific injustices and all-out butchery. Cotton was the director of Trenton State for 23 years, until 1930, and his practice of pulling teeth continued after his death into the 1960s. Moving on, the enormous, gothic-looking Danvers State Hospital was built in the 1870s in Danvers, Massachusetts. 
Danvers is said to have been the inspiration for H.P. Lovecraft when he imagined Arkham Sanitarium in the story The Thing on the Doorstep, which you heard at the top of the episode. He described the building and the town as ancient, moldering, and subtly fearsome, witch-cursed and legend-haunted, and a look at the hospital explains why. It was designed using the Kirkbride plan, and in the beginning, it was a hospital that treated its patients with kindness and compassion, as Kirkbride has intended. Today, however, it is remembered for being the birthplace of one of psychiatry's most shameful and horrible practices, the transorbital lobotomy. Danvers's immense size and expansive interior was meant to house 600 patients, but by 1939 it had a daily population of 2,360. It was impossible for the staff, which did not grow with the population, to care for the inhabitants, and the hallways were packed with dirty, sick people, many of whom died in crammed, forgotten rooms or weren't found for days on end. All the trappings of hellish asylum life were eventually implemented from straitjackets and solitary confinement to excessive electroshock therapy and the lobotomy. The first American transorbital lobotomy was performed by Walter Freeman in 1936 using an ice pick. I won't go far into that story today because we've done an entire episode on Freeman and his barbaric surgeries. You can find it in season one. But suffice it to say that his procedure kicked off a madness for the lobotomy. Suddenly it was used for everything from mild depression to hallucinations. And Danvers State Hospital conducted lobotomies at dizzying rates and became well known for refining the way they were done. The practice went on well into the second half of the 20th century, even though success was very rare if ever. More often than not, a lobotomy resulted in severe brain damage or even death. There were accounts from people who visited Danvers in the late 1940s and saw lobotomized patients aimlessly wandering around the long halls and staring blankly at walls, totally out of touch with their surroundings. Lastly, we're going to talk about Topeka State Hospital in Kansas, which may be the worst of the bunch. When you imagine the worst things that can happen in an overcrowded, underfunded asylum with untrained staff and no appreciation for the rights of patients, Topeka State Hospital is the most fitting example I can think of. People who were admitted here spent days and weeks and months sitting in rocking chairs, staring at walls, doing nothing. They were given no stimulation, no activities, and very little attention and that was the best-case scenario. Those who stepped out of line were subjected to outright torture. The staff at Topeka State physically and sexually abused patients as a systematic method of controlling them, and some were even castrated. One of the most horrific incidents from the hospital's notorious history is true nightmare material. In the early 1940s, a reporter named Roscoe Bourne, who worked for the Topeka Capital Journal, visited Topeka State to work on a piece about the condition of treatment, or lack thereof, in state-run facilities. According to the article, he saw a patient who had been strapped down for so long that his skin had begun to grow over his restraints. By 1948, the conditions at Topeka State Hospital had gotten so bad that Kansas governor, Frank Carlson, took action. He convened a panel to figure out how to improve the facilities, and the state legislature wound up doubling the funding for hospitals across Kansas. 
Psychiatrists and psychologists were brought in, a social worker was hired, and Topeka State managed to become a top example of good care by the 1960s. Unfortunately, tragedy and infamy came once again to the hospital in 1992 with the death of Stephanie Ulrich. By that time, there was an adult forensic ward at Topeka State, and in 1987, a man named Kenneth D. Waddle was moved from the Larned State Security Hospital to live there. Waddle had been found not guilty by reason of insanity in 1984 for stabbing a woman, and he'd already spent almost three years in Larned. A month after his move to the forensic ward at Topeka State, Waddle was moved to a less secure area of the hospital in an attempt to integrate him into the general population. But within a year, he managed to escape and go AWOL, so he was transferred back to the forensic unit. Because of funding cuts, a trend in this episode, as I'm sure you've noticed, the ward was closed in 1991, and Waddle was moved into the general population. He was just 25. Stephanie Ulrich was a 30-year-old music therapist who organized activities for the hospital. On February 23, 1992, she and another therapist took a group of patients off campus to see a film. Among the group was Kenneth Waddle. When they got back to Topeka State, Waddle said he had to use the bathroom and he split off from the group. When he didn't come back for a suspiciously long time, Stephanie Ulrich went to look for him. What happened next is one of the worst fears of anyone working with this kind of population. When she found him in the bathroom, Waddle attacked her. She was sexually assaulted and she was strangled to death. Waddle, who never should have been placed in the general population to begin with, was convicted of felony murder and aggravated sexual battery. One of the greatest accounts of life inside turn-of-the-century asylums was written by the remarkable journalist Nellie Bly, who managed to get herself confined to Blackwell's Island Insane Asylum in New York in 1887 as part of an assignment. She went on to write an essay, Ten Days in a Madhouse, describing the abuse she had heard about and witnessed. I made the acquaintance of Bridget McGinnis, who said she was sent to retreat for and put on the rope gang. The beating I got there was something dreadful. I was pulled around by the hair, held under the water until I strangled, and I was choked and kicked. It was hopeless to complain to the doctors, for they always said it was the imagination of our diseased brains, and besides, we would get another beating for telling. Among other beatings I got there, the nurses jumped on me once and broke two of my ribs. While I was there, a pretty young girl was brought in. One night the nurses took her off, and after beating her they held her naked in a cold bath, then they threw her on her bed. When morning came the girl was dead. The doctors said she died of convulsions, and that was all that was done about it. They inject so much morphine and chloral that the patients are made crazy. I've seen the patients wild for water from the effect of the drugs, and the nurses would refuse it to them. I've heard women beg for a whole night for one drop, and it was not given them. I myself cried for water until my mouth was so parched and dry that I could not speak. I wish I could end this episode by telling you how far we've come, that these horrific conditions are a thing of a nightmarish past, and that treatment for the mentally ill has gotten much better, but I cannot. Many positive advances have been made, but governmental funding for care of the mentally ill 
is still way, way too low. And the lack of healthcare in this country means that many people who need help have no way of getting it. Just last year, in January of 2018, 36-year-old Andrew Holland was found dead in the San Luis Obispo County Jail after being shackled to a chair for 46 hours. He had schizophrenia, and he was left to sit in his own filth without food or water with no clothing except for a helmet and a mask until he was on the verge of death. When he was finally untied by guards, he was dumped on the floor. He died less than an hour later. This doesn't sound much different from what Nellie Bly described in 1887, does it? This is still the way that some of the most vulnerable members of our society are treated while in the care of the state. Yes, we've come a long way but we still have a long way to go. Thank you for listening to Psychologia. This episode was created and produced by me, Amaya Perda, with voice acting by the lovely Jer Simpson, who also made our new logo, writing help from Mario Rivera, and original sound design and music composition by Cameron Carter. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychologia Podcast or Twitter at Psychologia Pod. And visit our website for links to source materials or to subscribe to the Psychologia Report at psychologiapodcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another exploration of the strange and pathological. Mm-hmm.